0: welcome to the new books network welcome to the new books network in film my name is annie burke um Quote, film theory is not a disinterested mode of comprehending the world, but a zone of resistance against the present order, unquote. So writes Daniel Fairfax, assistant professor in film studies at the Goethe Universität at Frankfurt and author of The Red Years of Calle de Cinema, 1968 to 1973, a two-volume set released from Amsterdam University Press in October of last year. Dr. Fairfax provides a comprehensive and compelling account of the writing and thinking of Calle's Generation after, a largely Marxist collective of critics working in the years after the journal's presumptive golden age. To the extent that this period's history and intellectual output is understood, it has been mis- minimized and mi- mischaracterized, and the author is here to correct the record and show us how, in his words, the Anne Rouge are ongoing. Hi, Danny.
1: Hi, Annie. Uh, how's it going?
0: It's <laughs> good. I, first, uh, I must disclose to the listeners, we went to graduate school together. We've enjoyed the great cinematic modernist Jerry Lewis together. And I am in your acknowledgements, so obviously we're going to dig into the ways I've inspired and really shaped your work in every single way. But we'll hold off on that for now. No, you're, you're my seminal
1: so, influence, Annie.
0: <laughs> that's, yes, that's obviously what you get if you read the acknowledgements. Um, but first, let's let uh, let's just talk Talk about you. Uh tell me a little bit about yourself and how you became a film scholar. All
1: right. Thank you. And first of all, uh just wanted to note this is my podcast debut. Uh, oh, so
0: congratulations.
1: <laughs> I, I popped my cherry if that's the right word. With it. <laughs> Maybe it not go. It's your it's, okay. your, it's your decision. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh no, no, I mean I am also all for like the move into the podcast realm. I think we should be academics should be doing more of it. Uh, me and, too yeah and i think and i think of them should
0: be doing it with me
1: yeah and tenure it should just all be about podcast output i think that would be that's how and i tweet and twitter feed
0: twitter feed yeah, and yeah. podcast yeah, twitter and
1: that's that's yeah yeah uh i went the old-fashioned route though and just like published a gigantic book uh
0: yes you did <laughs> and a great gigantic book that we're going to talk about for the next 45 minutes to an hour um how did you, how did you come to, not only how did you come to film studies, but I'm also curious, you know, did your mother drop a copy of the hugely influential French film journal, Cahiers de Cinema, into your crib as an infant? How did you come to film? But I also want to know how you came to sort of uh, post-68 French slash international cinema in the years, you know, before and after.
1: Yeah, no, that's a good question. My mom did not drop a copy of or a bound edition of like the <laughs> edited, um, papers of Kaya de Cinema uh, on my head. Uh, but she probably did drop a copy of Karl Marx's Capital, uh, on, ah. my, head, on my head at some point, uh, because I was, uh, not, not particularly with any kind of cinephilic background, but was a kind of red diaper baby, I guess. Um, and, uh, kind of was very much a, into politics from a young age, um, but also, at some point, uh, got, I don't know, let's say, uh, disabused of uh, activism. Um, there's this great uh, quote from Georg Lukács, actually, uh, where he says, uh, he's, he's just kind of been um, screwed over by the Stalinist Party apparatus at the end of the 1920s and uh, um, basically expelled from uh, the official communist movement. And he says, all right, the time of politics is over. Now is the time of aesthetics. But his like, own. Pursuits, And there was something of that, I mean, in a much more modest level uh, in my own biography that uh, I moved. Well, uh, unaware of it at the time, kind of moved my preoccupations from like politics in the political sense of kind of left-wing activism towards taking more and more of an interest in cinema, which as a kid I didn't, or even as a teenager didn't have much interest in or you know, no more than anyone else. I would say I was, Probably allowed to go to the cinema. I think four times a year. Once at every school holidays, uh, we went to the video store a lot. <laughs> that was probably uh, where I saw uh, where I encountered cinema. Um, and there was also I, I think one thing I should credit is in Australia. I'm from Australia. If people haven't picked that up from my um, Paul Hogan style accent, uh, but um, in Australia there was this, oh, there still is, but it's kind of different from what it was in my uh, younger days. A channel called SBS that was kind of pitched to a migrant audience. Um, so Australia's a country of a lot of uh, migration in the post-war era, particularly a lot of migration from European countries. And um, this channel was set up to to serve those communities. And a lot of cinephiles kind of infiltrated the channel uh, and showed great masterpieces of European or tourist cinema on the pretext that it's a Hungarian film for a Hungarian community or Italian. Neo-realist film or whatever. Uh, so I'd often turn on this channel, like wanting to try and find a soccer match, but instead I'm getting masculine, feminine by Jean-Luc Godard and just like, what is this? Um, so that's probably where I saw a lot of films uh, just kind of almost by accident. And uh, that's where I started to uh, really take an interest in cinema. And then it really took off in my second year of university where on a whim, I took a first year film studies course. And I think in week three, uh, they showed uh, Abu Souffle, Breathless by Goddard. I'd, I'd already seen Masculine and Feminine, but couldn't make heads or tails of it. But suddenly this was like the film that uh, I really switched me on to taking an interest in cinema um, and the rest is history, I guess. I just kept at it. I just became insatiable as a cinephile, wanted to watch everything I could. Um, picked up French just by like watching so many movies um and you
0: uh, did not well... you a- <laughs> <laughs> sorry. sorry no i'm, I'm g- good job <laughs> uh
1: I, I never learned french formally uh really? i just yeah i i realized i could understand quite a bit watching movies and i was like went there like on holiday and kind of like started reading things and that's just it merged in my mind through osmosis um So, so, uh, Goddard cinema in particular was kind of like, and still is a kind of, I guess, guiding beacon for me. Um, and then as my studies progressed, I, uh, kind of started reading, uh, film theoretical texts, texts. And at one point I I I still remember this. I was staying in Berlin, which is where I live now, but I'll be at 15 years later. Um, and I was subletting an apartment and the woman had who I was subletting from had this amazing kind of, personal library and it had film anthology texts and I just opened one up randomly and started reading Cinema Ideology and Criticism by Jean-Louis Camoli and John Nalboni um, and it was addressing a lot of questions I was thinking about As someone from this political background moving into cinema uh, in terms of my field of interests and trying to reconcile those two I guess how to think of films in political terms but not in a redundantly simplified manner uh i thought that article really uh and captured a lot of my own kind of much more rudimentary understanding of that relationship uh and i kind of there's just something about it that captured me um i would like read it over and over again voraciously and then like just like quote it at any opportunity at like parties or like uh i'm a you know obviously a great party guest, if I'm just quoting um, French film theory to people um, or, or like just accosting people on the street and like telling them, don't you know, cinema is an ideological uh, illusion and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, and then just I guess I just kind of started digging deeper and deeper uh, into this um, what turned out to be a, a fascinating world for me, at least.
0: Absolutely. Well, you sort of provided a roadmap for some of the questions I wanted to ask you uh, Mm -hmm. about language and also about um, cinema ideology criticism. But um, I want to, before we move into the specifics of your book, I just want to sort of look at the the evolution of the project, Mm -hmm. um, which is sort of how how did it? How did this start? How did this book begin as a project, and how did it change from sort of its initial conception to what we um, can now order for purchase at amsterdamuniversitypress.com? Oh no, not .com. Um, their website, and you can also read open access.
1: Yep, yep. So you can download the PDF for free. I uh, which yes. I recommend. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, I say in an act of economic self-sacrifice. <laughs>
0: It's very noble of you. <laughs>
1: um, yeah. Uh, no, this, well, this, uh, I guess that's kind of part two of the story is a little bit later um, when my French was getting a little bit better. I thought to myself, well, I read these things in English translation, but uh, what, is, what, what are they like in the French? And I kind of went into the library and started opening up the, these old back issues of Cahiers de Cinema to really uh, get a sense for the text uh, in their original language. Um, and then I started noticing that actually the English translations were not really all that great. Uh, there was a lot of inaccuracies or just kind of, um, ambiguities in the English translation that I felt like did not adequately represent the the original French text. Um, so, um, in, in around 2009, I was, uh, found myself in Paris doing research, uh, on a related question. I think I was actually researching Goddard at the time. And I saw advertised that Jean-Louis Camoli himself was giving a series of public lectures at the Forum des Images, a a French kind of film uh, institution, uh, and that he just published a book called Cinema Contre Spectacle, Cinema Against Spectacle, which actually reproduced uh, an old text he'd written for Caille du Cinema, Technique and Ideology, and then accompanied it by a new text, uh, where he was essentially arguing, I was right then, and I'm even more right now, like my text has only just got more pertinent and relevant to uh, think about our present day. Um, and this kind of, uh, I mean, it, I, it kind of almost astonished me that this guy was still around, still thinking about cinema, um, still active. Uh, he was making films as well. Um, and on the spur of the moment, I uh, just sent him an email and said, uh I'm a young guy like interested in your work and I've always been dissatisfied with the English translations would you mind if I took a stab at doing a retranslation and incorporating your new writings um he was very warm and generous about it uh invited me out to lunch um like introduced me to colleagues of his had lunch with him and Narboni. I mean this is like my mind was being blown, um, and then that uh, translation turned into a book, uh, Cinematic Spectacles, a translation of Camolli's book. And then uh, a little bit later, I started a PhD at Yale University um, under the supervision of Dudley Andrew, who some some of us will know is uh, you know as well as me, Annie, uh, the Bazan guy. Uh, the expert on Andre Bazan, Um, and uh, it occurred to me that I could do something a little bit similar to what uh, Dudley had done with Bazan, like disinterring his work, kind of doing the biographical research to contextualize it in his life, but also kind of demonstrating the continued relevance uh, of his ideas about cinema and about the world uh, that I could do that for the later generation this kind of the era of Kamolian Cam- Narboni. um so that's kind of how that project germinated it was a phd initially and then turned into this uh monstrous book yeah, well,
0: I mean, I it's so, it's so wonderful to read. It's so interesting, even for people who are outside of your area of expertise, of which I am one of those people. But I'm not only is it just like really interesting to read and really colorful and really and really insightful, but it's also just like very impressive for anyone who's listening who writes a book because it's um, just hugely researched and sort of covers your area in a million different ways, but I wanted to talk about sort of your multi-methodological approach, because not only are you doing that kind of textual analysis and archival research of going back into the catalog of Kaye, but you also have, like you're saying, uh, a lot of translation work going on, original translation work, which would be a book project just in of itself, by itself, as, as it was with Cinema Against Spectacle. And then you also have the oral history component where you're you're interviewing these. I want to say mostly men interviewing these men. Um, What to you, I'm just curious, like what to you did you find like the most challenging, the most rewarding? Um, I always found interviews really difficult. I'm not a great, (laughs) I'm not a great interviewer, said the podcast host. (laughs) Um, No, but, uh, you know, trying to interview subjects of a study, when you're trying to make a point about them and hoping that they'll either you know, confirm or deny. To me, that's not the easiest, but it sounds like it was really exciting for you to get to sort of meet these, these, these idols, frankly. Um, so what was that like? And what was sort of the translation piece pulling it together with the scholarly work of sort of reading their work closely?
1: Yeah, the, I'd say the interviews that I carried out with uh, the former Kaya writers was definitely the most exciting, but also by far the most intimidating aspect of the research um, we're talking about well, archetypes of French intellectuals. All of them and now in their kind of seventies. Um, they all, none of them, have left Paris. I mean, they, they, these are people who are as prisoners as as they as you get. Um, and uh, let's say to to like spoiler alert about the book, um, there is. The, the the terrain I'm dealing with is also the source of a lot of acrimonious um, disputes, let's say. It was not a peaceful era. Um, so there's a lot of interpersonal uh, sensitivities there um, that I had to um, negotiate very delicately. And, you know, I'm just coming in there as this guy, like, what am I doing? I think there was a certain level of initial suspicion maybe or or, or reticence uh, about my project that I had to kind of overcome in the course of uh, talking to these uh, to these men. It was mostly men. There was one woman, uh, Sylvia Pierre, who wrote for Kaya during this time, who I also interviewed, um, and she kind of was the figure, I think, who really broke the gender barrier in Kaya to Cinema. But, yeah, for the most part, I'm dealing with old men, intellectual f- film critics uh, who... Uh, don't take fools kindly. Let's say, and I and there was a certain suspicion about my project. I would say, as, as from, you know, or a certain natural reticence about it. That uh, who is this guy? Uh, what's he? What does he want? Um, and I think I had to kind of overcome that um, uh, that barrier a little bit. Um, but I found that you know once I kind of gained their confidence, they were extremely generous with their time. It wasn't hard to get them to talk. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, a lot of them wanted to share their their viewpoint. Uh, and then, of course, as, as any historian finds, and I kind of con- this was a historical project as well as a kind of theoretical project. You end up with a lot of conflicting uh, viewpoints about certain events uh, or or certain things that happened in the past. Uh, so there is also that process of negotiation, of weighing up the evidence, trying to find out who uh, you know. Uh, or, whose account is more reliable or, and most of the time in the book, I just said, well, this is how person A remembers it. This is how person B remembers it. And, you know, it's up to the reader to decide.
0: Absolutely. Well, I can see that sort of is part of the, part of what makes your account so interesting, but also potentially so challenging to construct. Uh, This might be a question that's difficult for you to answer because I'm sort of asking you to anticipate others' motivations, but I do think it's worth asking, why do you think no one had written this history before? What obstacles or um, sort of maybe intellectual blind spots have there been that you had this opportunity to tell this history? It sounds like one of them might have been that there were a lot of people to interview who might be uh, not initially... Wanting to talk, so that's one sort of um, one sort of issue going in. But why do you think that the red years have received comparatively little critical examination compared to, say, the years the years prior under Bazan's uh, guidance and leadership?
1: Yeah, I think I think that's an interesting question. I would say there there have kind of been two approaches to this period up until now. Uh, One would be reading it through or trying to understand it through the prism of the history of Cahiers de Cinema as a film journal. Uh, and in that sense, a lot of people treating it from that angle kind of see uh, this kind of post-68 period as a somehow an abandonment of the core project of Cahiers de Cinema or a disavowal of its uh, critical tradition coming out of Bazan and, um, and Truffaut and Romare and so on. Um, so that's one obstacle, and, those, uh, and that
0: critical that critical tradition is that of autourism and ontological realism. Those are the two points I I, t- I pulled out of your book, which is I yep. mean autourism, I think many le- reader readers readers of this podcast listeners of this podcast will know sort of prizing the the director as the chief artistic vision. Um, ontological realism. I'll I'll let you take that one. <laughs> sort of what is this? What is Bazan's big? big idea that uh, the Red Years sort of leave a well, this, little uh, I mean, bit is, behind, well, without.
1: Yeah, this is actually my that. argument, is that they, they actually end up not being too far away from Bazan in the end, after all. The, uh, this is often how they're presented, which is, Bazan, I mean, his basic idea was that the cinema as is a privileged medium for giving us a kind of glimpse into the nature of reality. Um, and this is often read as a kind of surface realism, Uh, Movies look the way things look in real life uh, because the camera is really good at doing that. And so that's that's realism. Uh, I think Bazan's actual theory of cinema was a lot more um, nuanced than that uh, and was kind of more interested in precisely the ways that uh, cinema gives us an insight into a kind of maybe let's say an underlying reality that's not necessarily just a, a mirror of a surface realism. And I think in the end, what the career of this post-68 year was doing was a very similar project, albeit inflected through Marxist theory, in particular, kind of like let's say the neo-Marxist theory of a figure like Louis Althusser, who would argue that reality is, in its very nature, a kind of ideological structure or filtered through uh, different ideologies, and therefore, uh, for Cahiers de Cinema, uh, for Camus and naberni and, and their generation the cinema is a privileged medium precisely for showing us the ideological nature of reality. And it does that, again, not through this kind of surface realism, but through these little moments uh, in films where uh, the system kind of breaks down. Uh, Sometimes this happens uh, accidentally or incidentally, let's say, or tangentially to the intentions of the filmmaker. And sometimes this happens as a part of a very concerted aesthetic program by a kind of much more radical... Radical filmmaker. Um, So, yeah, what what I was trying to get at though with this with this history question, um, the other the other angle, which a lot of uh, people have treated this period of Kaya cinema, is as a kind of stepping stone to later um, tendencies in Anglo American film theory. Uh, And I think there was this kind of hegemonic period, let's say, of a kind of Althusserian, Lacanian um, apparatus theory in film studies in the 1970s and going into the 1980s. And this then kind of came under, or came into crisis, let's say, uh, towards the end of the 80s. And I think that gener- a lot of that, because of those generations have kind of tried to uh, elide that whole period from their memories, uh, perhaps. And so in that sense, it's incumbent on the younger generation of which I have, Almost still a member, uh, to I think do this kind of uh, real historical uh, work, uh, for other, into an era which there are still people who have kind of direct living memories of that of that period. But for someone of my age, it's it's a historical era now. It has relevance for the present day, but it's also something you can, um, I think, you can treat from a, from the perspective of, of uh, history.
0: That's so. That's so great. Uh, Because I think that you make a really sort of important meta sort of conversation about not only the ways in which this history hasn't been told, but sort of the history of the history, the film historiographical dimension, which is how particular elements of this 68 to 73 uh, moment in the journal's output has been sort of anthologized and entered into Film studies canon, sort of like the essay that you mentioned, uh, Camilien Narboni's 1971 essay about cinema ideology and criticism, is something that I read. I think in introductory film studies or introduction to film theory. It's like a little bit. It's not you know totally totally you know for the for the casual film studies like Second but it, semester, it's,
1: kind it's, of Yes, material. exactly.
0: <laughs> if you if you stuck it out through, if you stuck it out from that first semester. Um, you get some Kamoli and Arboni's, but you sort of look at the ways in which it's not as though this is a completely lost era of criticism, but that particular essays have been cherry-picked out to represent the whole. And you look at them both as representative, but also trying to draw out the more sophisticated elements or contradictions in those essays um, and the two that I wanted to focus on because you focus on them are cinema ideology and criticism and uh, young Mr. Lincoln, which is from uh, about the John Ford film, uh, which was published a year earlier in 1970. I want to ask you what the big interventions are of those works and sort of what your new insights on those interventions might be, particularly because um, I think a lot of the listeners to new, new books and film have probably encountered these essays, but maybe have not gone into, haven't done a deep cut into these articles like you have.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think the first thing I would say is those two are two of the essays that really have got airtime, uh, mm-hmm. let's say, in, in academia, uh, which is a good thing. I'm, I'm glad for that. Um, and in in some sense, they are quintessential Kaya texts. But what I also wanted to do is place them in the context of this much larger corpus, which is not just the writings of Calle de Cinema at the time in this period, 68 to 73, but also what everything they've done, these writers have done since then. Uh, and the, most of them are still active, most of them are still writing or they're making films or doing all kinds of stuff in cinema. Uh, and so in the end, it's this kind of, I think I was a little bit naive because it turned out to be this corpus of gargantuan proportions talking about, about 10 film critics, all of whom were, uh, you know, very productive um, and, uh, you know, that's part of the reason for the, for the, for the magnitude of the, of the, uh, of this book, 800 um,
0: plus pages, not to brag for you, but just for those well, who I, are I, not yeah. googling as we talk, it's an 800 plus page, two volume set.
1: Yeah, I remember when I—I I think the morning after I submitted it uh, as, a, as a as in dissertation form, which was e- remarkably enough even longer. Um, wow. I, I, I mean, yeah, it was it was taller than it was wide, and um, <laughs> I, and I remember the morning after sitting on a railway platform and um, thinking to myself, "I've just screwed myself." I really thought I was going to be just expelled from the academy because, like, you you can't do that. You can't write something that long. Um, uh, but somehow I managed to get away with it and even turn it into a book. But I do tell students now, like, don't do what I did. This is not a good idea. Like you keep it short and sweet. Don't, don't write the the thousand page PhD thesis. Don't, don't do that to yourself. <laughs> mm. Um, but, but, and even then I felt like I just kind of scratched the surface, um, that there's all this other stuff I could have explored. Um, and didn 't have the time or, or wherewithal to do, um, so there you go there 's plenty there 's plenty of meat still on that bone for future scholars to kind of uh, take on but these two texts uh, cinema ideology criticism, and young mr lincoln they yeah they are two of the real like uh, fundamental texts um, I think one of the issues uh, that maybe we can talk about uh, in a sec is the fact that they 're both collective endeavors, mm-hmm. and I think that 's also a very important aspect of Cayetus Cinema at this period, um, like it was coming out of May 68, which was this kind of great, um, I think, collective moment, right? Where you had millions of people out on the streets um, protesting, organizing. And Cayetus Cinema sought to embody that spirit in their approach to, let's say, intellectual labor. Uh, and they made a concerted effort to reject, you know, not just reject auteurism in the cinema, the idea of the great auteur, the genius figure but also in film criticism itself. Um, so there was this kind of shift to a kind of collective mode of writing and a collective mode of being, really. I mean, these are about 10 or 12 critics who essentially lived together, not literally in the same house, but they spent all their waking hours together watching films, talking about films, writing about films. Uh, and that meant it created a lot of kind of psychodramas, which is also an interesting aspect to get into, but it also created um, some... Fascinating uh, text. Uh, Cinema and Ideology the Cinema ideology Criticism was a uh, written by the duo of Komodily and Narboni. It was intended as a kind of editorial. It was a bit of an affront to their owner at the time, who was a fellow called Daniel Filipaki, who was a, a kind of media tycoon, I guess, um, the equivalent not quite of a Rupert Murdoch, but I don't know who would be a mid-level media <laughs> uh mogul in the u.s um and it's a can great question
0: <laughs> uh come back to me <laughs>
1: Pass. Uh, yeah, he owned no, like, like the uh the french equivalent of like cosmo and um you know those kind of magazines uh and it just happened to have like kaya de cinema in his stable at that moment and they wrote this almost a uh, almost to kind of Established them, Kaido Cinema, as a Marxist film journal, and therefore it's probably something that didn't really fit with the Filippaki brand. Um, and he responded by essentially shutting down the journal um, for, uh, and um, eventually he sold it uh, to the editors themselves. Um, they, so they managed to establish a kind of editorial independence, albeit then a financial kind of state of extreme precarity because it was hard to make a journal of this nature profitable. Um, But this is precisely the kind of subject of their editor as well, which is the way that the cinema is inserted into an existing economic and ideological field. Uh, And in the case of France in 1969, in the case of us today, it's a capitalist economic and ideological field and no filmmaker can really escape that fact. Um, so they have to relate to it. But what distinguishes films and filmmakers is the manner in which they relate to that. So there's this famous, uh, almost an opening line of the of the text, which says, all films are political, which in some sense is true. But I think what the text goes on to demonstrate is that it's kind of the Orwellian line, like all films are political, but some are more political than others. Um, and... They try to distinguish films on the basis of are they are they just kind of pure reproductions of the existing ideology, which is the case for about ninety five percent of films or whatever, um, and they they just uh, worth nothing more than our just um, uh, kind of blithe uh, um, uh, silence. Um, there are then films that. Uh, seek to resist this this uh, state of affairs to offer a kind of radical alternative to the capitalist status quo, uh, but they can do so on two levels. Uh, one would be the, the theme of the films, their overt content, their political messages, let's say, they're, to use Cahiers' parlance because they're very influenced by semiotic theory at the time, they're signified, and the other is the level of form. Uh, what they're doing on the, on the level of their visual style, uh, film technique, and so on and so forth. That's the, the signifier for Kaya de Cinema. Um, and for Kaya, what's interesting is they really felt that form was the determinant factor, uh, which is not to say that the political content was indifferent, um, but it was only, let's say, operative if the form was doing uh, a, a similar kind of political work. So they were interested in this kind of politics of form. Uh, so, they then develop this kind of category of, or categorical classification system. Let's say films. Category A is films we're not interested in, they're just pure ideology. Category B is uh, kind of good films in our mind, uh, where they're doing both this work of kind of political uh, content and political form, uh, radical form. And then they get into some more interesting categories. Um, so, category C uh, is one where you see the same thing happening. But the political content of the film is not really that deliberate on the part of the filmmaker. Um, and But it, it kind of can get activated almost by the film critic and through their kind of counter readings of the film. Uh, this, that moment where they're discussing this type of film is, is I think, witness to one of the great uh, gags in the history of film criticism where they try to give examples of, of this kind of film that they're talking about and... Um, the, the the list of three examples is persona by Ingmar bergman so you know a bergman film mm. uh mediterranee by philippe Soléz and jean daniel Paulet, a very experimental film philippe solais is kind of figure in in left wing um re- like experimental literature at the time and then uh the bellboy by jerry lewis uh that he rounds out that trifecta um uh, and they but that for them it wasn't a gag because jerry lewis was one of the great modern artists and a great political filmmaker uh, and they were absolutely serious about that uh, viewpoint. Um, we then, though, get into I think a category D, which is more films that are supposedly political in the level of content, but uh, because they're lacking on that formal level, uh, Kaya the cinema are incredibly critical of them. The big case they'll be Zed by Costa Gavras, but I think that's um, I, I think there are a lot of films today that we could kind of uh, see from that standpoint. And then there's kind of category E. Which would be kind of classical Hollywood films, let's say, or classical films in general, where there is that same kind of, uh, let's say, mo- there are these moments of rupture in the film that's, that that, uh, in in a sense, subvert the film from the inside and that make it much more interesting from a critical, from the standpoint of critical analysis, than what the film might uh, um, uh, kind of explicitly suggest uh, or superficially suggest. And that is the young, young Mr. Lincoln is the kind of example uh, that they adopt for that category.
0: So that's the one in which there are these sort of, these ruptures between the conventional form and sort of the potentially subversive or radical politics. The, that's category E. But that doesn't it also sort of seem like category C, the one where the critic has to generate that kind of, um, yeah well, I think that reading.
1: Yeah. No, that's interesting. I mean, because I would argue that, I mean, part, one of the elements of the Kaya critical tradition is the almost a, there's a kind of battle between the critic and the filmmaker, that the, the critic is trying to assert their supremacy almost over the filmmaker as the ultimate arbiter of the value of a film. Uh, and so when it comes to category, the different category C and category E are very closely related to each other, I think the difference is category C tends to be more these kind of Uh, modernist or auteurist films that are not necessarily political uh, or, let's say, left-wing or Marxist or engaged politically um, on an overt level, but that Kaya are are nonetheless interested in because of their formal work. Uh, And the formal work is very deliberate and very overt. Uh, And in Category C, this is more concerned with classical films, where uh, there is this kind of, um, let's say, a kind of superficial um, obedience to a kind of conventional form, but that where, but where a kind of, let's say, an insightful critic can actually see moments where the system is is kind of being undone or is being kind of subverted. Um, so this again, John Ford. Most people would see him as a quintessential classical Hollywood filmmaker who makes films that were kind of totally transparent uh, in their formal work that almost rigorously adhered to uh, the kind of rules of classical uh, conventional um, filmmaking. But for Kaida Cinema, uh, Ford is actually a much more subtle filmmaker and precisely they kind of highlight these moments where that kind of uh, aesthetic system is departed from.
0: Well, as you mentioned earlier, Young Mister Lincoln was not even just written by two two men, two collaborators, but was sort of the a mission statement, a co- a collectively written piece uh, by the editorial board of K. A. at the time. Um, what was sort of the main sort of the main thrust of that? And I think my question, a little bit, is how does that fit with you know? There's this idea that. Um, films like Ford's, like there's this tension between reading it as an auteurist work, but also recognizing the genius of the system. And I can't help but see a kind of genius of the system happening in the essay itself, where you see like um, an opportunity for all of these critics, some of whom had very, you know, like robust fields of their own writing on their own, but that there's something special that happens when they all come together to create uh, this particular essay.
1: Yeah, I, I like that idea that in some ways they're, um, instantiating the, uh, one of the kind of innate, um, contradictions or tensions in filmmaking that it's a kind of, both a kind of collective medium, but also this kind of division of the auteur or whatever. Um, and, and Kaya also embodied that tension, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, no, I, I always feel like I wish I was a, a kind of fly on the wall while they were writing that text to, to figure out how it was actually written. Because, I, I mean, I asked, I asked them this one of the questions I posed to all the, these critics, which was, was this really a collective text? There's plenty of collect, supposedly collective texts in the history of uh, theory that are actually really just one person or two people or whatever. But their answer was always you know, unanimously, no, this was literally a collectively written text. We were all sitting around a table just kind of vibing with each other, essentially. Almost, I liken it, I think, in the book to a kind of improvised jazz session. Yeah, and this um, is in a time
0: before Google Docs. Like, there was no Drive; they're not all <laughs> on their computers. Like, you know, edit, make a suggestion. They're
1: they're yeah, actually yeah they're yeah. in, they in real life uh, uh, doing this. Apparently, Kamoli was yeah Kamoli was on the typewriter, but there but he was just kind of. Tapping now, whatever, right? That's or scary. whatever okay. popped into someone's head. Uh, the closest we can get to seeing how this worked is there's actually a film from 1969 about Jean Renoir's *Un Parti de Campagne*, which has about six or so Kaya critics talking about it, uh, and they're doing the same kind of thing. They're just they're just kind of um, batting the ball back and forth to each other about this film. So we get a kind of glimpse into their methodology in that uh in that film. Um but uh but no it was it was as close as you can get to a genuinely collective written text. Uh and therefore I think a remarkable uh, feat in and of itself. But also a remarkable feat in terms of what the text is doing because it's possibly something that you read now and it's almost it's almost a victim of its own success because the methodology that they established has become so widespread and so like just part of our oxygen uh, but at the time it really was something quite brown, g- groundbreaking um, it was I think very much influenced by the kind of uh, writing Roland Barthes was doing in the in the realm of literature uh, I think s set by uh, by Bart' kind of structuralist uh, deconstruction of uh, Saracen by Balzac is their model, essentially. But no one had done this kind of thing for a film before. Uh, and almost to say that Young Mr. Lincoln by John Ford is the equivalent of Saracen by Balzac is already a very, like, you know, and, and merits the same kind of uh, critical work done to it is already a kind of polem- polemical thing to do. Um, but I think what's what I find interesting about the about the, the text uh, that possibly uh, ha- has kind of flown under the radar a little bit uh, in, in because it's a very influential text. It's had a lot of response pieces written about it, but it often goes missing is, I mean, what they do is they place the film in uh, the historical context of its own production. Um, it was made uh, at the tail end of the 1930s in the lead up to Roosevelt's re-election bid in nineteen forty. Uh, when he was kind of going for an unprecedented third term uh, and you know, Republicans were kind of fishing around for how to, a way to beat him. The Hollywood studio bosses were all Republicans. Uh, Hollywood was not the liberal bastion uh, that it would later maybe become. Um, and um, this film was made as, as part, of that, part of those efforts. Uh, you make a, a kind of hagiography of uh, Abraham Lincoln because the Republicans are the party of Lincoln. Uh, and that can establish uh, their own bona fides, let's say, uh, as a ruling party as opposed to the Democrats under Roosevelt. Um, but what Caillere argue is that actually the film is not determined by this kind of political context at all. In fact, it almost kind of enters into... Uh, and I mean, John Ford himself was kind of tended towards the political right, so that was his own... You know, he probably had a, his own vested interests in it as a political project, but the film itself kind of undermines its own um, political um, mission. Uh, It's supposedly this kind of, uh, as I said, hagiography of uh, of Abraham Lincoln, uh, but uh, this kind of mythologization it uh, depicts to us of Lincoln, of young Mr Lincoln, so Lincoln before Lincoln, uh, the kind of formative moments of Lincoln's kind of younger years, uh like undoes uh the very status of Lincoln as a politician uh and therefore like you know this kind of uh status he is supposed to have in uh in in kind of popular american history uh i think i mean and and they go through like a lot of different levels of kind of uh critical analysis um to to um demonstrate this argument uh there's a kind of psychoanalytic section in there where it's kind of talk about uh castrating gazes um so Lincoln himself possesses this kind of castrating gaze um that uh is able to um defeat any all of his enemies almost just through the gaze itself um they, they talk about this moment in the film um where he kind of a murder takes place in a town. He manages to get the murderer uh, or get the person accused of murder off because he discuss, he figures out that he's got this almanac that can tell him that um, uh, although someone claimed that the, that there was a, you know it was a full moon at night and therefore it was moon bright uh, that night in fact it was a there was a new moon so it would have been totally dark so he couldn't have possibly seen the murder he's describing. Uh, but for Kaya, this is also like. This is such a kind of deus ex machina moment that it almost undermines Lincoln's own authority. He had to rely on this, like, um, th- th- this, this like, uh, gift from the gods in order to uh, prevail. Uh, but then what I find most interesting in the film is actually, or in, in their analysis of the film, is precisely uh, the moment where the murder is shown. Uh, and we don't see Lincoln at all in this bit, but what we do see is the real murderer... Uh, holding a, a weapon uh, and having a close-up of a kind of guilty look on their face. Um, but Ford's genius is that at that point in the film, we can't read that image as such. We don't read that image as the, the image of the guilty murderer uh, because we don't have that information yet. Uh, we can only retrospectively reread that uh, in the knowledge of what happens later in the film. And th- what this demonstrates uh, for Kaye is Ford's own work... Uh, like with and against the Hollywood system of representation. Uh, So it's kind of undermining the very basic idea of cinematic transparency by showing us things um, that we then can't even recognize when we see them. Uh, And then it's only kind of retroactively that we can realize like what we were shown and what what was visible to us while being invisible. Um, And this is where... You have this kind of link back to this idea of kind of symptomatic readings of films that you you can like watch a film for almost these symptomatic moments where it kind of uh, disorients the spectator and therefore kind of deconstructs its own uh, its its own system.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think your reading of their reading something that stuck with me was that moment of sort of introducing young Mister Lincoln, young Lincoln, him saying "You know me" to the crowd, but he's also saying mm-hmm. it to the viewer. And potentially the film that Ford has created is also saying that not just about you know me, but suggesting maybe the opposite. You, d- This is how you know me through the form of conventional film, what's to follow. You will yeah. both get to know me better, but also potentially be aware of the apparatus around how you know me. Um, and I'm just... I can't. This is just a trivia question, but do you know if John Ford ever read this? Because I picture him looking at this essay and thinking, either I'm yeah, a genius yeah. or like I these these dudes are whack. No, like,
1: I don't. I don't think he ever read this text. But they so. did, did. Some certain Kaya critics, like Serge Dene, most notably, did go to the United States and interview the kind of old Hollywood filmmakers, uh, and. This was really a kind of a moment of total, like, disconnect, let's say. I think Serge Tine relates talking to uh, George Cukor, um, and there was a film that uh, Kaya actually analysed Sylvia Scarlett, which is an incredible film, uh, and the text I write is really interesting about it. Uh, Catherine Hepburn plays a woman through a series of um, improbable events has to pretend to be a man, essentially, and has to like, kind of cut off her signature, like, um, plates and so on and so forth. Uh, and Kaya found this film really fascinating. Kukor was a total failure because it was a fa- it was a box office failure. It was a flop and he couldn't see any other merit to the film. Um, and, and so they couldn't even convince him that like his own film was any good. <laughs> um, so these, a lot of these Hollywood filmmakers were kind of not open to their own, to the counter readings of their own films. Uh, you had other examples of like where Kaya themselves got twisted into knots about filmmakers, um. Like Howard Hawks, they defended Howard Hawks to the death, mm-hmm. uh, even though he was making films where, like, I mean, or kind of, the films he was making were, uh, you know, politically totally at odds with what uh, Kaya was thinking uh, or were thinking, and um, and he was you know, coming out in interviews making all these kind of pro-war comments about the Vietnam War, making racist statements about the Vietnamese, and Kaya, it was a struggle for them really to to mentally juggle this their, their love for these filmmakers and their attempt to do these counter readings of these filmmakers uh, while at the same time acknowledging uh their to use modern day parlance problematic politics let's say uh but that scene you mentioned in in john ford uh in john ford's young mr lincoln of this kind of scene you know me i'm i'm playing a Lincoln. um I, I like that scene also as uh, uh, someone who's a bit of a mentor figure for me, Tom Conley, a professor at Harvard, also noted that, that he's also saying, you know me, I'm playing Abe Lincoln, uh-huh. um, <laughs> which is a nice little like uh, pun. And, but Kaya is also interested in that because they say this is also a moment in, and this maybe leads us into another text, uh, another famous text by Kaya. this is also a moment where the audience of the film is kind of, to use their terms, sutured into the film itself, uh, because we are kind of, uh, in a sense, inserted into the diegetic audience of that scene. Uh, Abe Lincoln is standing in front of the camera addressing an audience in the film, uh, but he's also addressing us, the audience, of the film. Uh, And there's this kind of transference uh, that takes place between the film audience and then this kind of on-screen audience. Um, And that process was what they called suture.
0: Yeah, let's talk about Suture. We don't, unfortunately, we can't go into all of the, you, We were. I was compelled by your point about the psychodramas and the tensions between um, members of Kaye, but since uh, many of our listeners will just have to get, your, get their hands on your book to find out about them, let's highlight one of the m- sort of more I don't know, like one of the more sort of like open questions of your book, which is the case of uh, Jean-Pierre Houda and his definition of suture, uh, he's sort of um, one, he sort of, I don't want, I'm, am I right to say he sort of coined the term? He's, is he the first use he, of this term?
1: He introduced it into film theory, we can say.
0: It. Yes. Uh, one that has since been developed in sort of psychoanalytic mm-hmm. and semi-out of context, Nick Brown's essay on stagecoach, Kajer Silverman. The one namer Zizek, Um, can you talk about what Uda's meaning of suture is and then give us like some of that biographical background that I think really culminates in his final essay for Kaye, which was about uh, the shining. So that's just to highlight that Kaye did not only do sort of we're talking mostly about sort of classical Hollywood treatments when we look at something like young Mr. Lincoln, but Kaye was also in this in this period also interested I don't, I don't know about equally interested but also interested in looking at contemporary film output at that time and doing these symptomatic readings in which they wrest power away from the author only to give it back in a qualified form right like you no, know, i make the meaning you are a radical genius like
1: <laughs> well i mean what i should say is uh there i mean kaya became pretty known in kind of around 1972 73 for almost abandoning cinema, and this is kind of their, and certainly contemporary cinema, and this is their, also their kind of this project of this kind of very radical Marxist-oriented film criticism that ended up in this kind of Maoist um, phase, kind of collapsed uh, by 1973, and they kind of they spread to the four corners of the earth, uh, or more accurately, the four corners of Paris. Um, but some of them stuck it out in, in, in Kaeda kind of cinema for a bit longer. Udar was one of them. And then, yes, later in 1980, he writes this text about uh, The Shining. But he was an interesting case because he had very little, unlike the other critics, had very little cinephilic background, didn't know that much about cinema, but knew psychoanalytic theory. And he was basically their kind of entryway into into psychoanalysis. he as far as I know, actually attended Lacan's seminars, but <clears throat> let's say you can, detect, you can detect from his writings already at this early stage and even more so later, uh, uh, let's say a certain wildness to his writing, um, which was is to say that his interest in psychoanalysis was not a purely, let's say, disinterested one. That were, I mean, he had some issues himself, uh, probably right from the start. Uh, but he delivers this text. It was his fourth published text for Kaya Cinema in 1969, which introduces this concept of suture into film theory, previously been mentioned by Lacan on uh, an offhand basis and had a text by Jacques Alain Miller um, dedicated to it. But uh, essentially, uh, Uda takes this idea and says, well, what films do, particularly as this kind of, you know, almost archetypally classical films do, is very similar to this idea of sutra and psychoanalysis, which in the psychoanalytic framework, it's a way for the subject, in a sense, to be enveloped by a discursive framework. Uh, That is for us to be able to actually function in societies. We have to have this basic ability to connect Symbols, uh, that is written language and, and other associated kind of examples of, of the symbolic, with uh, the, the the world we see around us, which Lacanians would call the imaginary. Um, that, that's that's a basic necessity of, uh, of functioning, let's say, psychologically. Uh, and who does as well, a very parallel process takes place for the film spectator when they're watching a film. Uh, that uh, we might have this initial stage, uh, this is almost kind of mythological um where we just respond to this cinematic image in this almost purely jubilatory manner and we just see this amazing image in front of our eyes and it's got all this like like wild and crazy content uh in it uh but very quickly we get bothered by this image because we notice that it has boundaries uh that it has a frame uh and we ask ourselves what's outside of this frame and why? Uh, why is this frame where It is. What's you know? Who is deciding uh, that the film image should be cut off at this exact point? Uh, and this figure, let's say this kind of imaginary figure that we that is kind of you know showing us and not showing us uh, the, the, this this image, is what Uda calls the absent one. Um, and what films tend to do uh, in the kind of classical mode is as soon as the spectator starts getting kind of (laughs) inquisitive about the status of the absent one, they show us a fictional uh, subject of the image, let's say, which would be a character looking at what we've just been seeing as a spectator. And this is the kind of famous shot-reverse-shot construction, which has the effect for Uda. And a lot of people came after him. I think Gudar is actually a lot more uh, subtle on this question. But nonetheless, uh, just to put it quickly, uh, when this happens in a film, essentially as a spectator, we then get immersed into the world of the film itself. So we no longer have this distanced uh, relationship uh, from the image where we just like look at it as an image, but suddenly we kind of identify with characters in the film. We can orient ourselves spatially. We almost feel like we're inside the film and therefore, um, we can kind of, uh, we, we, we respond to the film, let's say on that basis. Um, of course, what I was interested in was the way that uh, films are capable of undoing this process of suture. Um, if, And I think what's notable, though, is that when he gets to Robert Bresson, he starts talking about how Bresson's films are Mm. almost just pure acts of suture, and that's what makes them interesting. Um, So Bresson doesn't give us any ability to orient ourselves in the film other than just the mechanism of suture by itself. Uh, So for Uda, it's not just this mannequin distinction between sutured films and non-sutured films, which it kind of becomes a bit later but um, it, there, there's there's a kind of negation of the negation uh, in his conception of the uh, of the of the process uh, that's it uh, I mean he would later yeah re- continue to write for Kaido cinema up to 1980 but his texts become more isolated let's say from the journal and in some sense also a uh, lot more isolated almost from reality if I don't want to be too cruel here but there, there's a certain increasing mania in his writings that reaches the pitch level with this article he writes on The Shining, which almost, uh, I mean, almost when he's writing about Jack and The Shining, he's writing about himself, uh, and this relationship he has with writing. And that was the last text he ever wrote for Kaya de Cinema. And after that, the trace goes absolutely cold. There's no, he's ne- never published anything ever again. Um, I asked everyone what, what happened to him, and the assumption from most quarters was that he had a very violent break with Kaya de Cinema, sent him kind of death threats or violent um, letters, and um, eventually was interned in an insane asylum in Paris, and has been there ever since. Um, there's this very touching tribute to him from um, a fellow Kaya critic, Luis Garecki, who describes him as um, you know, one of the two or three greatest film theorists of the 20th century and completely unaware of the fact. So there's this kind of strange uh, contrast in fortunes between Uda kind of ends up in total ignominy and this this concept of the suture, which becomes this like (laughs) world-famous concept that everyone who's taken film studies knows about and talks about and tenured professors have built their entire careers on, but they all owe a debt to Uda, who is presumably still in uh, this asylum somewhere.
0: Is there a particular theorist or critic who you feel like is most analogous to Uda's initial conception of suture? You talk a little bit about how potentially one reason why his his piece about it did not get the same traction as others is it's a little bit more complicated. It's a little bit like dense compared to some more accessible incarnations of suture, but which authors do you think are sort of like the true torchbearers of Udra's suture?
1: Yeah, I mean, I actually, uh, you know, I think the texts that have this same quality, uh, I would say is actually the, the kind of feminist film theorists mm. who later would use it. And I'm thinking particularly of Laura Mulvey and Kaja Silliman, who I think really... Uh, their response to the kind of classical Hollywood cinema is striated by that same contradiction as in UDAR um, and where and, and Kaya as a, whole, as a whole, where there's this kind of uh, surface level rejection of this entire apparatus, but then this tremendous fascination with what's happening in these films uh, and the way that the films are kind of undoing themselves in a sense. Uh, the way Laura Mulvey talks about Hitchcock and Sternberg or the way Silverman analyzes Psycho. Um, I think that's that's get. I think that those kind of writings, and and I think that similarly with them, a lot of this suppleness, let's say, what their approach to classical Hollywood gets lost in in transmission. Um, but I think there's that same kind of um, tension in their writings as in Kaya de Cinema and their approach to kind of classical Hollywood cinema.
0: Not only is that. A cool answer, but also it's a nice transition to, I think feminist film criticism is a nice transition to what uh, I want to, our penultimate sort of issue that we have, I see looking at my clock, which is thinking about feminist film criticism is, is a. I think a great example of how criticism can be sort of a bridge between the academy and sort of the public square uh, conversations outside of, you know, a university or a purely scholarly setting um, in addition to being um, a scholar of and a genuine expert on senses of cinema you were also an uh, a lot for a long time an editor of the influential online journal senses of cinema and as i talked about in my intro you talked about the the aneurges are, are ongoing i want to talk sort of about the contemporary resonances of your case study here and your experiences as an editor of contemporary film criticism sort of what do what do the years the red years have to teach us about the state of criticism now
1: yeah, I think that's an excellent question, and that's also the kind of secret motivation for the book, which mm-hmm. was like, um, not to take this as just a dead letter that historians can ponder over, but to think about its its ramifications for today, and I think there's a lot of ramifications for today. Uh, I, and yeah, I, I was editor at Centres for quite some time, I actually um, uh, retired uh, earlier this mm-hmm. year, um, it, totally amicably, there's no acrimonious departure um and you know i tried to infuse at least my activities with senses on a very modest level with that a kind of same spirit as kind of cinema Uh, certainly in terms of this idea of a kind of criticism as a kind of zone of resistance to the um uh let's say bigger political field uh a modest one still i mean let's i harbor no illusions <laughs> about the the, the large scale effect of what we can do. Uh, but nonetheless, modestly, um, I would say that in contrast to Kaida Cinema, uh, Kaida Cinema is always a, a, a magazine that had a, a line, let's say. It, this is what it was known for. Truffaut had a line and he had the films that he liked and the films he didn't like, and you couldn't cross him on that question. Camoli and Naboni were very similar. Um, Sometimes the films are the same as, as you know, the, in the 1950s, sometimes very different, uh, but nonetheless it's always about we're for A and B and we're against uh, X and Y. Um, and I think with Senses, it's a very different era now and we're all, or i say we, at least when I was still there, uh, always had this conscious, uh, a consciously much more eclectic approach to film criticism, so I was open to lines of thinking that were not necessarily my own, but that were in some ways interesting or stimulating. Uh, so that's some, some, a sense of which things are different. Um, I would say though, that on a more general level, what I think Kaya can and should teach us is to really, um, let's say do the critical work of analyzing a film on a very serious basis and also to precisely be interested in the ways that films are kind of contradictory objects. And this is probably, I mean, we've seen a kind of certain resurgence of political film criticism lately, but I would also, I'm also unsatisfied by a lot of the nature of this criticism, particularly in the kind of online sphere, which I find a lot of the time... Uh, a l- very reductive and simplistic. Uh, and in my crueler moments, I would call it a kind of identity politics Zdanovism. Uh Zdanovism was this kind of the Soviet uh, artistic credo that said you have to have these kind of positive heroes that embody all the um, positive uh, political content that we want to film to convey. Uh, and there has to be very, this very clear distinction between the positive hero and then the kind of uh, the, the 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 ideologically uh, negative figures. And I feel like a lot of film criticism uh, nowadays uh, tends to like stay on this level uh, of just kind of evaluating films. Uh, are they politically good from a, this kind of identity politics standpoint or politically bad? And it comes down to analysis of the characters or the supposed intentions of the authors and precisely the films that I find much more interesting and much more, uh, I would even argue emancipatory uh, from a spectatorial standpoint are the ones in which the, the the films themselves are kind of contradictory, are undoing themselves, are subverting themselves, um, are kind of open to critical counter readings that would ne- that possibly we ourselves would be uh, would be surprised by or would find to be unexpected. Um, one example, I. Thought of recently, and it's a little bit less recent now, but um, I remember watching the film Get Out uh, when it was in cinemas. And I probably can't get into the <laughs> nitty gritty of this analysis now, but it struck me you could develop this film, uh, a reading of this film, as actually a critique of the Obama presidency um, and nice. like understanding the kind of metaphor of the film through this kind of uh, the lens of. Um, the, the failure of the Obama administration on a political level, uh, which is not at all what Jordan Peele's intentions are, because he is a big fan of Obama and like you know to- totally like um, pro Obama. But the film itself is, I think, s- subtle or supple enough, let's say, uh, to authorize a kind of c- counter reading that could actually even go against the intentions of its author, and you can do that through a reading of the kind of formal like elements of the film that uh, perhaps jar the spectator or kind of create these moments of uh, rupture or these moments of momentary disorientation. Um, And um, I think that um, that is precisely the lesson that Kaya gives us, is to focus on those kind of moments, focus on those kind of elements of a film. And be aware of the possibilities of a film to be, let's say, much more than meets the eye.
0: So would you say that the best films are these supple films that allow for um, the most sort of contradictory and complex readings? Or are they the best for critics? Like-
1: <laughs> that's, a, that's a good uh, distinction. Um, because, uh, yes, but then, uh, you know, they're the best ones for critics. They're the ones where the critics can really do, like, some some great film criticism. Um, but I also think the measure of an art form is, is the criticism that it gives rise to. Right. Uh, the state of health of any art can be judged by the quality of the criticism that is being written or articulated in, in any medium, podcasts are also a form of criticism or can be, uh, at that given moment. Um, okay, yeah. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't draw a like, clear distinction uh, between the two.
0: But, right. Well, I, I do okay. I will take your reading of um get out off the air because I am interested, uh, but I I'll want... write a, I'll
1: write something okay. one day to that effect. <laughs> to that effect.
0: Yeah. Um. I just wanted to follow up uh, because that's something that occurred to me while you were talking uh, about the editors selling. Uh. I'm sorry. The owner selling mm-hmm. Kaye in this period back to the editors. Um. I read that. Kaiya got sold in 2020. Is that is that right? Yeah, got sold yeah. again. Um, and then the editorial board resigned. Um, so I'm wondering when we talk about the state of of criticism, I've also been following what's going on with Believer Magazine, which is not a purely film magazine, but mm-hmm. it is one of cultural criticism. Um, do you think that ownership of these cultural of these cultural institutions of these outlets is having any shape on what criticism looks like, which if I can put a label on what you were saying, it sounds a little bit like you are done with the, your fave is problematic readings. Like, did you know that this movie is bad? Like, um, although i just watched a movie called the lost city sandra bullock channing tatum and it was so it was so empty i couldn't even come up with a why this is bad like <laughs> couldn't even come up with an ideological con- condemnation of it i just was like bored um and so i don't i think that's even that's extremely <laughs> that's an extremely toxic force in cinema but to get to my actual question which is about um i mean there is this element of um sort of labeling films that you're talking about, but I, I wonder if there's also an aspect of sort of uh, capital, like the like the volume that your mom dropped on your head, if there's a capital mm-hmm. dimension here.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, this is, I think, uh, you know, uh, this is the famous question of the determination uh, by economics in the last instance, which is a formulation by Althusser, who's was basically saying, well, uh, Marxism is traditionally considered to be this economic determinist kind of uh, method. Uh, and Althusser tried to kind of make it a bit more nuanced than that and and understand how ideology can have kind of these feedback effects on on the kind of economic sphere but the economics was always determinate in the last instance like when it really really comes down to it uh that's the important factor uh you know to have culture you need to eat uh and i think this is the problem for film criticism now which is how do critics eat um who is a professional film critic now uh, there's like three people in the world probably <laughs> left. Um, it's it's gone from something that you could viably do uh, as 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 a profession. Uh, Kaya de cinema itself. There's a, there's a um, one of the critics, Bernard Eisenschitz, told me we had nothing, but we lived well, which was possible in 1970. <laughs> um, you you know you, they they will, had almost no income, but they could go watch a movie and eat dinner in a restaurant like every night of the week. Um, they had no possessions. They had no. I mean, they had a tiny room, but it didn't matter uh, to them. They lived well. Um, but uh, critics now don't even have that possibility. Certainly not on the basis of of film criticism. Uh, certainly not young critics. Perhaps a few established figures still do that. But and this is a question: is is film criticism? How does it change when it's just someone's hobby, uh, or when it's just what you do on the side a little bit as an academic, but, and, you know, this is a bit of a self-criticism here, like just to feel like you're more relevant than you actually are um, or, or like somehow less uh, ensconced in an ivory tower of, of, uh, of the university. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's the one of the big cr- pressing questions of film criticism because it affects the ability to think properly and in depth. Uh, if uh, if you're scrambling to like, uh, you know, pay the rent on time. Yeah.
0: Uh, it just seems like a okay, yeah.
1: Or if you have to work two jobs or whatever, and, and you're just writing in your free time. I mean, those are, there are some basic ways in which just the savage reality of neoliberal capitalism is completely antithetical to, uh, thinking precisely as an act of resistance and, uh, I think yeah, that's not a to overly idealize to
0: this post-68 moment, but yes, I mean, this idea that you could actually return the journal to its editors feels like a very,
1: very yeah. distant. Yeah, said it was a total disaster moment, uh, when, sort of. <laughs> when they owned when they owned their own <laughs> yes. journal. Like, they lost, I mean, they're also writing very challenging texts, losing readers by the truckload. Readers would write them letters saying... I can't understand a word you guys are saying anymore. I want to keep subscribing, but <laughs> but this isn't, uh, and it wasn't sustainable. It blew up like in 1973, and um, I think Serge Denay noted kind of acerbically um, the only reason why they managed to survive and and you know to the point that they are still around in present day in that period was. Because there were a couple of hundred North American universities that had uh, library subscriptions that they never bothered to like cancel, um, and <laughs> that that was uh, it. <laughs> they were just they had this hidden subsidy by wow, North American yeah. uh, university libraries, and uh, if they didn't have that, they it would have collapsed. But that's not very know, nice. I don't know what to make of all of this. Yeah. It.
0: I, it, well, it's, it won't be because I'll ask you, uh, finally, is there any other, are there any event? Thank you so much for, first, thank you so much for sitting down with me uh, to talk about your fabulous book and to provide so much sort of bonus bonus commentary through uh, your your answers to my questions. Uh, I just wanted to make sure that you have a chance to promote any events or uh
1: that you're doing for the
0: book or any current or future research you'd like listeners to keep an eye open for.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure what events I have coming up to be honest, I mean, I mean, oh. I'm in Frankfurt. We do a lot of stuff in Frankfurt, but <laughs> it might be hard for your listeners to so make if it you're there. In
0: Frankfurt. Come on by. Yeah. Sure. Uh,
1: there's plenty of stuff with uh, Frankfurt's the home of the Frankfurt school. It's Krakow. There's yeah. uh, lots of stuff going on. Um, but yeah, um, in terms of research, uh, what I'm looking into now, actually, and it won't materialize as a book probably for a little while yet, and uh, but hopefully a more manageable one this time, uh, is actually precisely the period like afterwards, uh, so the 1980s onwards on a global level, uh, like let's say the the state of film theory under neoliberalism. Um, oh, wow. So, and it's precisely getting into some of these questions that we were just talking about, um, and I think um, the kind of position of the book is that film theory is both a critical reaction to, but also in some level, a symptomatic uh, manifestation of the neoliberal era.
0: What an upbeat way. (laughs) close,
1: <laughs> this is i, I like it. All, this is this is the hangover complicit. after the party uh you know the party yes. was 68 and the, this is the neoliberal hangover like decades yeah you
0: know. makes sense to me well thanks again danny dr fairfax everyone get a hold of the red years of calle de cinema thanks again have a good have a good day everyone